uh, today is, uh, as we're in this series, The Wonderful World of Family. Family is seldom like the Disney fairy tale. Today, our thematic tie-in is my favorite Disney movie, and it's a close 1A and 1B over Lion King, but Finding Nemo. Anybody else here a Finding Nemo fan? A brilliant movie. Uh, I love it because it has a Bruce the Great White Shark in it. That's the, that, they had me at Bruce uh, on that one. And uh, so here's, here's what's going on. Tomorrow night, we have here, Randy, our Randy Kramer is going to be leading a workshop on the genogram. The Enneagram for families is coming in a couple weeks where we help you go through your Enneagram for families. We did it for couples back in February, but for families. But tomorrow night is a mapping of your family history. And Randy will show you, if you're interested in learning about it, how to map your family history. And today's sermon is really just a 30-minute reasoning why you need to know something about your ancestry. So here's what we did. And, I, and, I, and I'll probably cry during this because my daughter uh, had asked my grandson, Gage, to map out Finding Nemo. Uh, on the geneogram via his artwork. So here we go. If, ne if, if Nemo found himself at the genogram workshop tomorrow night, he would draw a circle and a square for his mom, Coral, and his dad, Marlon. He would also draw shapes for the 400 siblings he lost when his fellow eggs were attacked by a barracuda. He would note the loss of his mom and how his dad became overprotective in the wake of the attack. Right there is a brilliant genogram detail that losses in your family line affect you today more than you realize. More than you realize. He might even go further back in his family history and note that clownfish are often led by the females and the male's main job is to just protect the eggs. I think there's a feminist statement in that, but I'm not sure where, you know. <laughs> he would see how this might explain Marlon's overprotectiveness and his fear of the open waters. You can see that there. Nemo might draw out his other formative relationships, his seahorse and octopus friends who lead him astray on his very first day of school. The Australian dentist slash scuba diver who steals him away from his home. The new friends he makes who invite him into their tank hood. Uh, uh, tank hood, not neighborhood, tank hood. He might draw out his, fam his father's friendship with Dory, whose own family history is lost at sea. His life is also affected by the addiction of Bruce the shark and the chill nature of Crush the turtle. And, and this is, you know, that, that the grandson doesn't fall far from the... From the family tree, he had to put blood on Bruce the great white shark's mouth. He's just growing up to be as sick as his grandfather is. He might explore what it has meant to him to move through the world with a wounded lucky fin and what it means to carry all this animated pain and just keep swimming. He might see what it means to leave and return home. And this is by Gage. So I want you to give it up right now. This is art by Gage. And, uh, you know, I, got, I made through it without crying because uh, just stuff like that makes me weep. But, but notice that last line. Notice that last line. I want to reiterate that. He might see what it means to leave and return home. 
And one of the things about understanding your ancestry is, is one way to put it is when you meld it with the one who came to give us a new ancestry, it gives us the power to really go home. To really go home. Meaning that place of origin that restores who you were meant to be in, in God. When God thought of the idea of you, at the end of the day, you're, you're, God had a vision for you that sin destroyed and it really took you away from home, that place of security where you could then live out who you were meant to be. And this is really what today is about. On the way in today, I was listening to Jackson Brown's song, Doctor My Eyes. Anybody remember that song? And in light of today's subject matter, I listened to that song deeply. He's asking someone to explain to him, uh, why is it there's all this pain that I've been carrying, but, but I've learned not to cry, he says. In other words, I'm carrying stuff that I don't really understand, but now I'm ready to deal with it. That's really what the song is about. Now I'm really ready to deal with it so that I can be fully the human being that I was meant to be. And this, when you get to this, you're getting at the core of this thing called the genogram. Now again, today is not useful only if you're going to go to tomorrow's workshop. We don't want to infer that. However, if indeed you decide to be a part of tomorrow night, that today is going to act as a basis for that. Look at these words from Deuteronomy 5, verse 8. Now this is... A really well-known passage, actually. It's actually in the middle of the Ten Commandments, as they're called. But there's a, there's a, uh, a statement made here that has been the, the means by which movies have been made. There's probably, I bet there are a dozen movies that have been made with the phrase used here in it. And misunderstood. I want to walk you through this quickly. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers. Anybody ever heard of a movie named Sins of the Parents? Sins of the Fathers. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I want you to notice something here really important on this. This is why you have to know a little bit about your ancestry. On the surface, that, that statement seems so unfair, doesn't it? Like, I'm going to show up in, in coming generations, and I'm going to punish your great-great-grandchildren for things you did. Is that, that's what it seems to appear to, to look like on the surface. It'd be like you going, maybe you have a five-year-old daughter, and, you're, and, and you go to your five-year-old daughter, and you say, Honey, I, I just learned that your grandmother is running an auto theft ring in uh, southern Tennessee, and uh, we're going we're gonna to ban you from going to your prom 13 years from now. That wouldn't be very fair, would it? That's what it seems like is going on here. What's really going on is something that in Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. Hebrew poetry was not identified by rhyme and meter so much as it is in poetry to us today. Hebrew poetry used certain mechanisms to make points of emphasis. And one of them was numerical parallelism where you'll read a lot of times in the, New, in the Old Testament, there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven that are detestable to him. And that's where 
uh, a number is used to either compare or contrast two things. If we put it today, we might say, the Bengals hath known wretchedness for three years, the Browns, yay, wretchedness for 30 years, right? Well, you might, so we would say things like that, and what we're doing is we're comparing ineptitude. We're comparing ineptitude. So, look at this. The, the writer, we think is Moses, says, your family system is going to be felt three or four generations down. But, 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 it also can be felt a thousand generations down. Now how? Look at, these, look, at this, look at this statement. Sometimes numbers are used not to emphasize a single point, but to contrast two different things. And what the Lord is doing here is he's saying, I, the Lord your God, I'm contrasting here. I'm a jealous God. I punish the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation, but, and that's a big but, showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. One of the things you need to understand, like, like, let me hook you right here. We're not just big on Jesus because we think he can give you a new paint job on your rusted car. We're big on Jesus because we think your car is rusting in places you're not even aware of and you need a total overhaul. And the overhaul is the love of God. This is why our mission is to connect people to Christ. Somebody finish that for me. Not religion. Religion tends to say, you know what? We got a little mold in our house. Let's paint over it. Let's go to church. Let's live moral lives. Let's pay our bills. Let's not kick our cat. Let's just be the kind of people who are good citizens, good Americans. And the reason that we have no interest in that is because what we realize is we all have stuff from our family system. Your family system may be you were so good that your family's sin is pride, actually. That's, that's not uncommon. That we need an overhaul that will affect generational line in a totally different way. Now look at this. God says, I'll punish to the third and fourth generation, but contrasted to that, I'll show love to a thousand generations. And what was the qualifier? Of those who love me. This is really, really vital. The sins of the parents I'll punish to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What many people miss on this is the generational effect is really on a very, very, very sharp edge. And that is, God says, people who despise me are going to reap the consequences of that down three or four generations. There's going to be a system built in that will affect generations way on down the line. But a thousand generations, this is how powerful my love is. When people start saying, you know what, the primary pursuit of this family, of me, is to love God. To love the Lord my God, to have no other gods before him, that he has a relationship with me that is exclusive in comparison to every other relationship. Why? Part of the reason is, is the decisions you're making today, most of you who have children are going to be great-great-grandparents, and you are affecting great-great-grandchildren right now by the decisions you're making. You say, that's, that's exaggeration. It's not. Because the decisions you make to either play around with God and kind of add two pounds of God to go with religion, or to say, you know what? The pursuit of my life is to love God. 
Everything else flows from that. But I'm not playing a religion game where I hope I do just enough good to get in. No, I am playing in a, in a, in a high-stakes thing called life that everything pivots upon where's my soul going? What has my soul? This is really big in America where we are a very religious country. We, we are a religious country. We have, our, we have our politics, and we have our lifestyle, and we have our money section, and we have our religion section because we're religious people. And that's not what Jesus came for at all. He came to say, I got the whole magazine. It's all mine. And all those things now become surrendered to my reality in your life. There's a book that I have mentioned for the last 25 years that has been the number one book that affected me and how I see family. And it's a book by Jeff Van Bonderen called Families Where Grace is in Place. And, and you can still get it. Jeff Van Bonderen has affected me more than anyone that I've never met. And in that book, the essential basis of that book is a question. Will your family line, will your family system be a grace-based one or a curse-based one? Now, here's why I need to give a qualifier. I, uh, I grew up in, uh, in the three phases of a person's family life. You think your family's normal, you discover it's not normal, and then that's normal. And I remember when I got into the second phase of, whoa, my family's not normal. And I remember that happened right when I surrendered to Christ. And I didn't know it, but I took on a, I'm going to be the Messiah of my family line. I'm going to interrupt the sin pattern in my family line. If any of you are listening to this message and you're getting the idea, I'm going to be the savior of my family. Let me whoom, caution you on that. Did you know there's only one savior? Did anybody know this? And what happens when you take on, I'm going to intercept my family line, you usually don't make your parents' mistakes. You make your own mistakes. You make up new ones that are usually an extreme reaction to what it was in your family system. Anybody, anybody by chance experience this at all? And you end up doing things to your offspring and to their offspring that are reactionary punishments for what your ancestors did or for what you did. Some of the most legalistic Christians I know were wild as sin in college. And they're not going to be wild and their kids are not going to be wild. And they are marlin the fish overprotecting their kids. Why? Because if a parent does a good enough job, they can make sin 30 miles away at all times. Anybody know, am I, is anybody tracking with me on this? It's unbelievable. So this morning, I get a text. And, and as uncomfortable as it is to say that, to talk about this, you guys know we've been open about our family journey. It's the reason why Players Box exists is because I had the brilliant idea that we were going to make different mistakes from what my parents made. And uh, so uh, we did. And so it led to some severe pain for my two children. And this morning... 
after a long journey. They are in Cleveland, running the Cleveland Marathon. Jordan is running the half marathon. And Austin was running that marathon, half marathon with her. Like he can run a half marathon. If you wake him up in five minutes, he can do that. It was no big deal. But he was, he was Jordan's pace. And then literally at, at uh, 8.55, I get a text. Jordan just finished the half marathon in under two hours because her brother was pacing with her. Yeah. And uh, I say that because my mistakes, in part, nearly cost them both their lives. In part. I don't beat myself up anymore. I used to. But it was interesting that they were doing that this morning because Jesus saves, not their dad. Because Christ is our hope, not you. Not you. And, you know, th this, is, this is a huge, huge deal. Um, the thing about ancestry is you cannot fake your ancestry. We now know that literally in, in genetics, that those of us who, I'm, I'm of a strong Native American descent. My, my dad is a half-breed. My grandmother on my dad's side, I mean, my dad was, his first eight years were on a, a reservation. He went through all the shame-based uh, rites of passage in the Apache Native American tribe that, that really left an imprint on him. His mother then left him. And when he tracked her down in 1986, living in Orange County, California, she wanted nothing to do with him. Do you think that affected me? He lived his whole life to prove I'm worth something. Our dear friends here who are of African-American descent, we now know literally your ancestors affect the DNA you bring into the world. It is passed down. We literally now know that. And today's message is critical for you. Those of you who are of European descent, we literally now know that some of the trauma that your ancestors experienced in Europe, this is not, this is not hocus pocus, oh, you know, my ancestors, uh, they, they uh, wrapped their diapers too tight, and now I'm living a miserable life. No, it is literal genetics affect you. And so you can't fake your ancestry. It is what it is. And, you know, there's an old story, a guy about my age who goes in for insurance, uh, to get an insurance, new insurance, and he gets tired of the same thing happening. Sits down with the uh, questionnaire, and the, the agent says, okay, uh, how old is your dad? He's dead. How old was he when he died? 42. What did he die of? Heart failure. How old's your mom? She's dead. How old was she when she died? 44. What did she die of? Pneumonia. I'm sorry, we can't take you. You're too high a risk. Anybody ever, you know, our insurance friends here know that this is a way high risk. So he just said, I've had it. Goes in for a in new insurance, and he sits down with the agent, and he says, how, how old is your dad? He's dead. How old was he when he died? 92. <laughs> what did he die of? He fell off a horse playing polo. <laughs> how old is your mom? She's dead. How old was she when she died? 98. What'd she die of? Childbirth. Now, you, you, can, you can act like, you know, my dad was a general in the Civil War and everything's great in my uh, family line. No, you cannot fake your ancestry. 
And the reason this is critical in understanding family lines is you think the people affect you and your family are the ones that you're living with right now. And trust me, that is enough, isn't it? <laughs> but it's not. I love this. Uh, I found this. I had used this years ago. Um, a daughter-in-law who wrote these words, any day now we'll get my mother-in-law's annual Christmas letter to us, which will go something like this. Dear darling son and that person you married, <laughs> Merry Christmas to you, and please don't worry, I'm just fine considering I can't breathe or eat. The important thing is that you have a nice holiday thousands of miles away from your ailing mother. I've sent along my last $10 in this card, which I hope you'll spend on my grandchildren. God knows their mother never buys them anything nice. They look so thin in their pictures. Thank you so much for the Christmas flowers, dear boy. Put them in the freezer so that they'll be fresh for my grave. Which reminds me, we buried Grandma last week. I know she died years ago, but I got a yearning for a good old funeral, so Aunt Viola and I dug her up and had the services all over again. I've invited, I would have invited you, but I know that woman you live with would have never let you come. I bet she's never even watched that videotape of my gallbladder surgery, has she? Well, son, it's time for me to crawl off to bed now. I lost my cane beating off muggers last week, but don't you worry about me. I'm also getting used to the cold since they turned my heat off, and I'm grateful because the frost on my bed numbs the constant pain. Now, don't you even think about sending any more money because I know you need it for those expensive family vacations you take every year. Give my love to your darling grand, my darling grandbabies and my regards to whoever her name is, the one with the black roots who stole you screaming from my bosom. Merry Christmas, love, Mom. <laughs> Now, you think that, that hit too close to home, didn't it? I could tell. That, that was too real. I, now, you think that that's, the, the, that's my problem. It's people like that in my family that are my problem. And, uh, yeah, they are probably. That's not your biggest problem. Because your biggest problem is wherever you go, your ancestors are still there. The genetic inheritance you got is still with you every, every, everywhere you go. And we have all been deeply affected by preceding generations in our family line. We have, whether we realize it or not. And so the question we face is, every one of us, whether you're of Native American uh, uh, heritage, African American her heritage, European American heritage, everybody faces this question. Are we going to degenerate in our family line or regenerate in Christ? I think it's interesting that the Gospel of Matthew begins with the, the section that all of you skip over, don't you? I know you. What is it that Matthew chapter 1 begins with? Anybody know what that is? You know what it is because you skip over it every time. You think it's irrelevant. The genealogy, why is it important? Because Jesus' earthly genealogy was messed up. Why is that a statement? It's because he came to start a new line. Look at this. I'm going to give you some theology in the remaining minutes here that you really, really need to understand. So that you realize that Jesus didn't come to put new drywall over your, your decaying house, over, over your, the patterns of disease that are like mold. No, he came, he came to tear it down to the foundation, and he's the new foundation. He's the rock. Look what it says in, in, for example, Romans 5. Just as sin entered the world through one man, think of sin as like a virus, Adam, 
and death through sin. And this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Once we were infected, then we started doing things that were in rebellion against the holiness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all are infected, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is essentially the spiritual mystery hope found in Jesus, is you are not a victim. You don't have to be a victim of your ancestry. Even if today, you know, your dad was an alcoholic, you don't have to be a victim of that. Look at this. Chapter 5, verse 13, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin was not taken into account when there is no law. So the law, do you know the Ten Commandments weren't given to make us better? This is why I'm not like, don't, no, we don't need them on the courthouse. Because people don't, the, 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 the Ten Commandments weren't given to make us better. They were given just to show us, messed up here, messed up here, messed up here, messed up here, messed up here. Like, you, you can look at it and go, ooh, I need help. Like, there's a literal measuring stick called the law that says, if you're planning on making it based on your goodness, you're in trouble, friend. And, and he says, nevertheless, death reigned, even without the law. We know that something screwed up in humanity. Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command because it didn't exist, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. And what he's getting at here is he's saying, just look around you. Let's say there were no laws, it's, it's in America, is increasingly becoming true. We don't have any basis of absolute morality. It's just based on who thinks what about themselves. Take that away. How many of you, even if you're progressive, you say, boy, something's wrong with humanity? Would, it, would anybody disagree with that? Just, just pick up your phone, read one article in the news. Spend a weekend with your family. Something's wrong with humanity, isn't it? Something's messed up. We, things are not the way they ought to be. Jesus said, out of the human heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Even good people have stuff coming out of them that you, if you knew the truth, you'd go, whoa. Jeremiah said this way. He said, the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So, you know, there is no law. You just spend any amount of time with people and you realize, man, is there, is there any way of helping us out on this one? Because humanity's really messed up. I saw a post on Instagram last week. Of, uh, there's a, it's a truck with, I love you, Dad, scratched into the passenger side of the truck. And the little girl is standing there holding her screwdriver. She thought she was doing good scratching I love you dad into her truck. Even when we try to do good things, we will taint them, won't we? we that's, how, that's how messed up we are in and of ourselves. And so, Romans 5.15, but the gift is not like the trespass. Look at this. The trespass affects three and four generations, but the gift is different. It's even more powerful than that. So lest you think there's this thing called sin and then there's this equal force called grace, he says, no. Just like the sins of the parents will be visited to the third and fourth generation, the love of God will affect a thousand generations. That's how powerful it is. It's contrastive. It's using this 
picture to say, listen, listen, this is different. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more? See, this is Deuteronomy all over again. Did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? That if you start getting a family line where this, in this family, we don't, we're not religious, we just love God and we live out of the security of that. We don't need to be extreme protecting our son from swimming in the ocean per se. Why? Because we know there's a God who is over the ocean. We, we see the implications of, the, of, of this security in Jesus Christ. He says we are from perfect ancestry. We were infected by sin, but now in Christ we are perfected in grace. And this is a game changer. Because now this, this makes it very clear that I don't have to be a victim of my ancestry. That the mystery that was kept hidden for ages and generations is the second Adam. Jesus, the second Adam, didn't come just to say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up new wall, drywall. He needs to know, we're taking this down to the foundation. And your life is not going to look like the typical American's life. You're not going to go for the things that a typical American goes after. Why? Because now your life is about the love of God. Everything is about allowing your heart to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and allow him to love you fully. And you're not going to change your family line, but he will. And it'll be because of his love. And I, you know, I think sometimes when we do this church thing, we oh, good, it's good, you know, we do church, got a little God, a little, get a little God in our life. We, we want to make sure our kids are in South for kids because every kid needs a little God in their life. Oh my gosh, that's selling God so short of what he did in Christ. This is why I, I detest religion. I mean, if you're around me for five minutes, I detest empty religious ritual that does not connect the soul to the love of God. Why? Because this thing is not about religion. It is about a transformative relationship that changes you from the inside out. And you have a choice. Are you gonna be the line of regeneration or degeneration? It is your choice. Every day when I wake up, I have, I have a, a decision to make. Am I going to allow God to love me fully? And am I gonna love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength as I walk through my day and, and over time he changes me? When I come to church, it's not just a religious act. For that 13 minutes, I'm singing with my brothers and sisters and I realize now that as I share the love of God with them through music, my heart, literally, my mind is literally, we now know this is neurological scientific fact. If you sang with your heart today for 13 minutes, your brain literally changed. Do you know that? You, you will walk out of here with a different neurological connection than you walked in with. Is that amazing or what? Why? Because you don't have the power to change your family. But his love does. His love does. And this is why we don't want you to think you're part of a religious movement here. You're a part of a relational movement. And the things we do that look religious, they're not an end in themselves. They're a means by which, like, we come together for however many minutes and we say, I love God, don't you? I do too. Let's grow in that today. Because that is our hope. So here's what you do today. 
If you've been a religious person all your life, today I would ask that you surrender to Christ. That you say, Jesus, my heart and soul are yours today. I don't know where I go next, but I am yours. I can't change my family, but only you can. I surrender my soul to your love. And you pray that prayer here in a minute. You get up and you take the communion, which says, communion doesn't save you. It's the symbolism of what it represents, the blood of Christ, that God shed his love so that you would be no longer infected by sin's viral punishment, which is death. If, if anyone believes in me, he said, you'll never really die. You'll never really die. Your body will, but you'll never really die. Why? Because sin no longer has power over you. You're of the resurrected one. And if that's you today, that, that today can be nothing less than a surrender. A surrender to this love. And if you're ready for baptism, we're ready for you. And many of you know we have big splash coming up at the end of the summer, but you don't need to wait to jump in. The water's good. And we'll take you and say, now... You die with Christ and you're raised to a whole new line, a, a new humanity you're a part of, the second Adam. And if that's you today, then follow me right now as I pray. Father, for many, many here, they've been religious all their life. Maybe they took a break when they were disillusioned from religious activity, but they get religion. Just clock in. But that's not the life of Christ, the life of Christ is a full surrender. 95% surrender is 5% short. It's a full surrender to say, Jesus, I realize you love me. I realize that that love is the defining reality, not only of my life, but of generations to come. And all I can do, I can't rescue my family. But all I can do is surrender to the love that rescues the lowest, the most broken, the most prideful. The love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And nothing in all creation, neither height nor depth, nothing in all creation, things in the present, things to come, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I pray that that guy right now, that gal, that they'll look back on this day and say, that was the day that I finally opened up my soul to the regeneration of this amazing love. And everybody said, amen. amen. See you next week, everybody.